Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have with us a man I've been really, really waiting to talk to actually for a long time. And I finally got up the courage to send the invite and ask if you want to be on this show. He's been in really the vortex of an amazing, amazing, amazing success story with a very active and high profile sponsor over the past handful of years. He is now the director of investor education at Ashcroft Capital. He is Travis Watts. Travis, welcome to Street Smart Success. Hey, Roger. Thanks so much, man. Appreciate the invite. You got it. And so, Travis, you know, I know a couple of things about you because I've been following you and I hear you on other podcasts. But for my listeners' sake and for those that maybe that don't know your story, where do you hail from? Where, where did you grow up? And then what was the path ultimately to the wonderful world of passive real estate investing? Yeah, it's been quite the journey. We were chatting before the show on you know, sometimes it's not a linear path from beginning to end, right? I mean, we have to bounce around, have setbacks. I had an interesting story starting with, I'll start off in, in kind of college days. So I was a musician, I was a drummer, I was a singer in bands throughout Florida, and I wanted to go tour with bands. So I wanted to run audio and lighting, and I just wanted to do, you know, stage design and stuff. So that's what I went to college for, moved out to New York City, started doing off-Broadway stuff um, there, and then just completely realized how that industry works, didn't really have the connections necessary, and thought, you know, this is going to take a long time to start paying off dividends. (laughs) So I went back to Colorado, which is where I was raised, uh, to answer that question. And I thought, I want to try something different. I had done all these little small businesses that failed and clothing lines and audio mastering stuff and all this. And I thought, I want to get into real estate. I had read uh, Rich Dad Prophecy early on. That was probably around high school. I didn't read Rich Dad Poor Dad for a very long time. I didn't even know that was a book. So Rich Dad Prophecy is one about the stock market and the imminent collapse that's coming and it's going to be the biggest ever and scared the crap out of me about stocks. And so I thought, why not real estate? Because real estate was crashing. And I thought, if nothing else, I can buy the dip or get in at a lower price than a year or two ago. So 2009 is where I got into single family homes, but I needed the income. And so I joined... um, uh, an oil and gas company because I was single, I was young, I didn't have a lot of responsibilities. And I thought, sure, I can work 14 hours a day. I can do 60 hours a week overtime. I can go overseas. I can do all these things because that was just my my highest and best earning potential. So I never stopped living like a frugal college student. And I saved and I saved and I saved. And I put that all into single family real estate, flip, uh, fix and flips, vacation rentals, buy and holds, uh, house hacking, had roommates, did all these different things for um, cash flow, and then really started honing in on the passive income to get to that part of the story for you. It was it was at that time where I had a first roommate and he's handing me a check for 600 bucks and I didn't have to work for that money. So that was a very uplifting moment to me. And I thought, okay, how do I scale that? How do I get all these different $600 checks without having to go to work and you know grind it out, swinging a sledgehammer. 
So that was really my motivation was I want to get out of this job. I don't want to have to work 100 hours a week for the rest of my life. I'm going to die out here. And so uh, that led me into passive investing so that I could free up my time. I could build diversified income streams of cash flow. And that's what I did. So between 2015 and 2016, started offloading my single family home, started going into multifamily private placements mostly. But uh, to the point of your show, I've invested in self-storage, mobile home parks, ATM machines, note lending. There's lots of things you can do for passive income. And uh, I was able to leave that job so I could go pursue other things that were more interesting to me. Went to go work for a huge brokerage house for a while, got licensed and did that stuff. And then went right back into real estate and started helping smaller syndication groups kind of build up investor relations and then moved on to working with Joe Fairless and Ashcroft Capital. And now today, just doing speaking events nationwide and workshops locally and you know getting to network and mingle among folks like ourselves. So... That's kind of how it unfolded. Lots of jumping around, lots of crazy stuff, but here we are. <laughs> Listen, one of the reasons I love doing this is, you know, I meet, you know, I meet all kinds of people. And if we weren't doing this interview right now, I would never know your background. And that's, you're, you're a very interesting guy. I, I had no idea that you were a musician, that you were a singer in bands and that uh, you really have quite a range of experience and very impressive in, in that, you know, you're the same guy. You, you don't meet a lot of guys that were singers in bands that are ultimately flipping single family homes. Um, <laughs> Couple just details, easy detail stuff, just out of curiosity. Where where in Colorado were, were you raised and what college did you go to? Yeah, so Fort Collins, Colorado. It's about an hour north of Denver. And in later years, moved out to Denver and kind of lived all up and down the, the front range out there. So 2017, we made a permanent move out to Florida and that's where we are now. And so we have a one-year-old. And so we wanted to raise him out here with uh, the climate, the weather, the beaches, and we like the lifestyle out here. So um, I'm sorry, what was your other question? Where I, I was in Fort Collins about a year and a half ago, by the way. I'd, so oh, cool. I, I, I'm one of the few people that know Fort Collins, nice little town. The other question was, where did you go to college? Oh, uh, Valencia College out here in Florida. So the thing is, funny story on this. So <laughs> ironically, with investing and what I do full-time today, my worst subject in school was math. And I always struggled with it. And I was about to fail out of math. And so I said, okay, I got the scholarship for the first two years paid if I stayed in Florida and I did college uh, out here. And I looked specifically for a degree that didn't involve a math class requirement in the first two years. And that's why I, I coupled the music passion with that particular associate degree and, you know, I really didn't want to go to college. That was the bottom line, but ended up going, did my two years and thought, okay, it's time to go out there and work and be an entrepreneur, try something else. You know, I was just uninterested in, in the process. And quite frankly, I was done with school mentally, you know, probably from about the 11th grade. So anyway, that that's kind of what, you know, led to one thing to the next. You know, I, uh, when I was in college, I was to say that I even was a C student would probably be an embellishment, but um, <laughs> I had to, so I took communications because it was the easiest, it was the easiest major I could take and still somehow slither my way into a degree. But yeah. I had to take, for whatever reason, I don't remember the reason because it was a long time ago, but for some reason, I had to take calculus to, oh. to to, to get the diploma. And, and I knew there was not a prayer. There's no way on earth. There's no way I was going to pass 
calculus because because one of the things for me at that point is there was never really a day that went by at that point where I wasn't extremely high on both drugs and alcohol. And so I paid somebody to take that calculus class and it was the only A I got in four years. (laughs) (laughs) Thinking outside the box. (laughs) I love that. Okay. Where did you flip the houses? And then I'm going to get into current day stuff with you. Yeah. So a lot of the flipping was, you know, inspired by all the TV shows that we always see. It just seems like the lucrative, sexy thing to do. And so it was also market timing, you know, between Fort Collins and Denver. We're talking about... 2012, 13, 14, 15, and a little bit in 16. So that's, you know, the the market was just exploding out there and it just made the most sense. You know, I could clip $500 a month cash flow or I could just turn around and make 50 grand. So it just made sense to me. That was the strategy. It doesn't always work. As you know, everything goes in cycles. And this past year would have been a, a pretty tough year for flippers. So between Fort Collins and Denver is where I was doing everything. And I started getting uncomfortable knowing I only am an expert. So, well, I say expert. I really wasn't an expert. I'm only knowledgeable in one market, really, you know, Fort Collins to Denver. And so what happens if we have some political risk in Colorado, right? They double the state income tax. Or what if there's a natural disaster? Or what if that market starts tanking for one reason or another and employment starts pulling out? I didn't want to wake up one day you know, be 50, 60 years old and have 100 single family homes within a 30 mile radius and then have that kind of risk. So that's what really prompted me to start learning about syndications where I could live wherever I wanted to live, but then I could go invest in whatever market I thought would outperform the national averages, you know, so that's kind of how I've played that. Hey man, you were smart. Jeez, you know, you're smart to be to be risk averse and to be, you know, uber dispassionate and, you know, thoughtful about it. So what has been, well, the first question is this, is I noticed on your profile that you now are director of investor education, but you had a different title up until I think last year. So maybe tell me about, it sounds, it looks to me like a promotion. Is is that correct? And what is the, what what's different about the, the new role? Yeah. So I've always been a person that if I go out and do something, if I take a, a supplement or I do a workout routine or I read a good book, I want to share that with people. I just want to, I want everybody to know this is, you know, what I find interesting and helpful and maybe you can benefit from it too. That started way back in high school. I wrote a little 60 page book for students that were struggling academically with other things because I felt like I had a little method to my madness that really helped out. So anyway, long story short, I was investing with Joe Fairless and Ashcroft for many, many years leading up to this. And what I was doing on a personal note is I was flying around to these different real estate events and conferences and joining meetups and things. And I was just trying to learn and network on my own out of my own pocket. So I reached out to him on a Saturday. I pulled out my iPhone and started recording this video. And I was like, hey, Joe, (laughs) it's one of your investors, Travis. You know, you know me. I know you. I said, look, if you have any kind of openings right now where I could do educational events for you guys, just let me know. You know, we can talk details later, but just if that's something on your radar, I would love to do that because I'm doing that anyway on my own. So Joe's very humble. He's like, thanks so much for the video. That was super thoughtful. But unfortunately, we don't have anything right now. I'm sorry. So about two, three months go by. I didn't know what my next move was going to be because I helped launch an investor relations um, sector to the business with a small syndicator out of Denver. And I was done with that. You know, they had a full staff. They were done with me. I was done with that project. So 
Joe reaches out randomly and says, hey, we're now hiring for director of investor relations. And a lot of the things that you told me in your video seem to coincide with what we're looking for. We need someone to educate and speak and travel and do this stuff. So I applied to it and you know they gave me the job. And so I helped them build out an investor relations department. At that point, it was just Joe taking all the calls for thousands of investors every year and having to be the general partner and having to do everything else he does. So we've hired now a team of five, maybe six at this point. And I'm finally able to do what I was hoping I could do from the very beginning, which is being an educator and just sharing experiences and how do private placements work? What are the risks? What are the pros and cons? How does this fit into perhaps you know your portfolio or what you're looking to achieve? So uh, that was the title change, basically. Once I had built out that department and handed that over to Evan Pulowski, he's our manager over that department, I was able to step into this role. So quite exciting and, and really what I've wanted to do for so long. And I'm happy to be able to do it under their umbrella. Okay. Congratulations. Um, It sounds like you did a great job building up that department. I'm going to ask you some questions that, you know, as I was preparing these, I didn't know if you would feel comfortable answering. So I I respect, you know, I I respect if you're comfortable or not. Just tell me, hey, you know, I'd I'd, rather not directly address that right now. So in, in the IR, in the IR role, which you now are doing something somewhat tangential to that. You're more, you know, about education, not that IR isn't about education too, but do those jobs have goals and and quotas per se? I mean, I know that there's always a thrust to raise money. I get that, but I wonder, is it, is it kind of formalized? uh, Okay. Yeah. We put a new director of operations in uh, chat Collins, who used to be head of investor services. So she's kind of taken over a lot of the organization to it and identifying what uh, key performance indicators are looking for how many calls were taken, how many emails were sent, how many conversations were had. And of course, they're looking at conversion rate and you know what's working and what's not. And then our team all does local workshops and does local events with our investors and things like that. So there, there's a lot of detailed metrics that, that they go by. So investor relations is much more about building the individual relationships, the ongoing relationships with investors, checking in on them, Asking them, you know, what they're into. Are they traveling? What's their hobby? You know, that kind of stuff. The education is a lot more about uh, doing webinars and doing podcasts, getting on stage at a conference and then doing a 30 minute presentation, you know, so that's what I do now. And of course, I still have a lot of great relationships that I hold on to from IR, but that's not the primary focus for me at this point. So it sounds like sounds like what you're doing now is more like marketing and PR per se, as opposed to like direct sales, to put it bluntly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've never been a capital raiser. I don't raise capital. I'm not compensated if somebody invests or they don't. So it's really, it is more marketing aligned, I guess. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Okay. And, 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 you know, as you were describing, Travis, kind of the process that's being implemented by, implemented by a new director of ops... Uh, where they're really creating regimentation around it, um, which I yeah. totally get. It's a sales organization. Are those people then paid? On, are they paid on performance, at least part of their structure? You know, salary. Yeah. yeah. So it's everything that we have, at least, is salaried with a potential bonus. And that bonus is 100% tied to those KPIs. Again, not whether or not people invest, but did you do what you said you were going to do? And then hopefully a little more throughout the last quarter, that kind of stuff. 
Got it. Well, you know what? I, I, I've never asked that question. And so that's very interesting. I guess intuitively, it certainly makes sense. You know, and again, with respect to the fact that, yes, you, you, your role has been modified to education. So I, I got to ask a question anyway. What is raising capital like today compared to a year ago? Because you certainly know. I mean, you're close enough you know, to the organization. Sure. Yeah. Well, it was interesting. So I would say the toughest year in the past several years was the onset of the pandemic in 2020. We had so many investors just, I'm on the sidelines. I'm not doing anything. I don't know what's going on. And I'm not ready to place capital. So that was the hardest time to raise is through the summer and early fall of 2020. Now, things picked back up in 2021. People got familiar with the process and, you know, everyone's getting these, you know, stimulus checks and all this kind of stuff. And so things started ramping up again. 2022 was another tough year because the Fed finally, you know, took some action and said, no, we're aggressively going to raise rates. And we all know that that's a negative for real estate, at least for for pricing's sake. So that was another really tough year, especially towards midsummer. And the, of course, the stock market started collapsing and the fear came back into the market. This year, I would say those who understand the relationship between interest rates and pricing and the fact that maybe the Fed is, is closer to the top than they are to the bottom on this rate rise gives an opportunity to kind of buy the dip. If you've got a longer term perspective, we're seeing prices that are relatively 20% down from a year ago. So that's an opportunity to buy that, stick a 7% loan on it or something that's pretty high like that, put the right debt structure on. And if the, the Fed ends up tapering or you know reducing rates in the future, that could be a really bullish thing for the commercial real estate space. And if they stagnate and hold, then we should be able to execute in the same way that we did over the last five to seven years, where mortgages were between three and four percent and not moving a whole lot. So we'll see. I don't know. You know, it'll be an interesting year to see if this fund, uh, you know, out outperforms. So far, the the raise on fund number three, which is what we're on today, is right in between fund one and fund two. So <laughs> we're we're on the same trajectory, but. I don't know what it's going to pan out to be. So we'll see. I think somewhere I heard that, and maybe it could have been you on a podcast, that Ashcroft has been doing fixed debt pretty much throughout. Is that correct? Or am I thinking of something else? So we do a hybrid of Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loans, and then private loans. And it's going to depend on what property we're buying, what the size is, and what the scope of renovation looks like. So we, we buy between 200 and 600 units in size. So let's say, to use the extremes, we're going to get a 200 unit and half the units are already renovated. So we only have 100 to do. We're going to get through that business model relatively quickly. And so what we don't want to have is a high prepayment penalty in case we want to refinance or sell early. Whereas that 600 unit, let's say it's completely untouched for the last 20 years and it needs everything done, that's probably going to take us like five years. So we're okay doing the fixed rate, high prepayment penalty, long-term debt on that. So if we're not doing fixed rate on a particular deal, then we're doing an adjustable rate with an interest rate cap with a small margin to it. And so, you know, it's technically fixed rate anyway, right? <laughs> I mean, it's so tight that if the Fed hikes, you know, 50 basis points more than it's fixed rate at that point. So um, yeah, it, kind of a 
more complex discussion, but that's how we structure it. You know, it, it, it is the, the, on, the only twist to that. And I'm just learning as I go, you know, doing, doing the work that I do. The only twist is that, you know, with a variable with extensions, even though there could be a rate cap, there's certain covenants in place that, you know, require a certain debt service coverage ratio and, and mm-hmm. there's yield maintenance, et cetera. I'm just wondering, do you have a sense, especially, you know, because you're in it in, in the educational part of this, yeah. um, are, are you seeing other operators that are starting to have challenges getting extensions? Are you guys having any challenges for any of your properties, you know, that, maybe one or two outliers that didn't go as planned, et cetera. How do you view all that? Yeah, it's a great point. And for those who are unfamiliar, I would say a couple different things. First of all, to understand that commercial real estate loans, when we say long-term debt, we're usually talking about five to seven years, maybe up to 10 years. But it's not like buying a single family home and putting a 30-year fixed rate mortgage on a property. And then you have a series of years, usually, that can be interest only. So you're not having to amortize the loan, which gives you more available cash flow. So here's the problem. If you bought a deal five years ago, okay, with five-year interest-only debt, and you were able to get a 3% loan back then, that maturity is coming up this year. And mortgages have gone from 3% to, say, 7%. So you're going to have to figure out what you're going to do at this point. If you just flat put a new loan on, do a refinance at seven, that could demolish your available cash flow. Okay, And the interest rate caps are like an uh, insurance policy. And a couple of years ago, you could have bought one. Let's just make up numbers. I'll say for $80,000 because interest rates have been low and you know for many, many years. Well, now some of those interest rate caps are a million dollars. So how are you going to buy the interest rate cap if it's a million dollars and you don't have adequate cash reserves? You have to stop distributions. You have to either do a capital call and ask investors for more money. You have to sell in a somewhat soft market where pricing's relatively, say, 20% down, and that's not an ideal time. So none of these are good options. right? And so to your point, Across the board of, say, 50 deals that I'm in with all these different operators, there's a there's a definite handful, probably seven of them, that have either paused distributions, moved to quarterly distributions, cut distributions. Uh, so far, no one's looking at a capital call, but you know, time will tell. So um, with Ashcroft, thankfully, this year in 2023, we don't have any debt that's maturing. So we're not going to be in a position where we're forced to sell or do any kind of anything really this year. So we're sitting good in that regard. But, you know, who knows what the future holds? Does the Fed just keep raising and raising and raising? Do they stagnate or do they start cutting towards the end of the year? I don't know. But if they do start cutting, that's going to be an opportunity for us to refinance like crazy (laughs) and everybody else for that matter. And it's really going to help valuation. So we'll see. Exactly. That, you know, uh, God willing, that happens as opposed to the converse, because who really knows? Did you say you're in 50 deals? Roughly, yeah. Different syndications, again, different asset classes, different operators. So, yeah. How, How many operators would you say that is? Roughly 15 or 16 different operators. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Boy, I really appreciate your candor. I would say I'm involved with maybe a a dozen operators, not as many deals as you, which is probably probably stupid. I'm probably putting in too much in each deal. In in fact, I have. That's just a fact. But I'm just, I'm I'm learning as I go, Travis. You know, you you work with Ashcroft. So, you know, 
that's clearly obviously multifamily. What are other asset classes aside from that that you really favor given now the amount of experience you've had doing this? Sure. Well, something about self-storage that's always intrigued me is to look at past recessions. Uh, a lot of people talk about them being you know, recession resistant as multifamily is as well. But here's what's interesting. Right now, there's a lot of scrutiny over raising rents on residential real estate. I mean, they're, they're proposing even you know a national rent control. We'll see what happens. I doubt something like that passes. But if it did, that would really hurt the industry. On a self-storage unit, think about paying $80 a month for a self-storage unit personally, and then them saying, hey, your next month's going to be 100 bucks." Sorry, but prices went up. That's that's a you know twenty percent hike. That's huge. That's massive. That's bigger than you see in residential real estate in most markets in most years. But they can do it, and it's not a big deal. It's twenty bucks. You know, most people are just going to say whatever. So it's a hundred. Was eighty? I don't really care. It's twenty bucks. So your margins can be quite significant doing a value add self storage play. So I think that's an interesting one to look at. Mobile home parks. You know, the thing that intrigues me about mobile home parks, if they're diversified, you've got a lot of different pads in a portfolio or in a fund, is that we are so undersupplied right now as a nation for affordable housing. And that's that's what it is. You and I were chatting about Section 8 before. So I'm not necessarily talking about that particular program. I'm just saying if somebody working class, working at the gas station, fast food restaurant, retail is making 40, 50K a year as a household, that's the type of housing that they need. And so I think during recessions, which is looming over our heads as we speak, that's the time that these sectors really you know, go crazy and, and are needed the most, I'll say. So that's another one to look at. The thing, here's my general philosophy, invest the most in what you know and understand the best. And then hopefully you can diversify out of that too, in case any one thing happens to one particular sector, you can make a pivot as an investor and not just be a one trick pony like I talked about earlier with my single family homes. If all I am is a is a fix and flipper and I know nothing else about anything and that strategy stops working like in 2022 or 2008, 2009, I'd just flat be out of an income or I would lose a ton of money. So I want to be able to switch to other things. Uh, aside from that, one quick note on publicly traded REITs, real estate investment trusts high correlation to equities. And so they're buying a lot of the same types of properties that we buy, large commercial, multifamily. And despite the performance being healthy, if equities are dropping 20, 30%, that's pulling down the price of REITs also. And so there's opportunities sometimes to kind of buy the dip. And what used to be a 4% annualized yield turns into an 8% annualized yield. And then you've got some equity upside potential. So Never financial advice, not telling any of your listeners what to do, but these are just things to think about in different sectors. And so I was buying REITs in 2020 when the market crashed. I was buying last, I think it was last October, the market was was bottoming out again. I bought more REITs during that point. And I like REITs because they're they're liquid. If I need 50K tomorrow because a syndication pops up that I want to do, I just sell some REITs and then boom, I got my 50K. So pros and cons, right? Everything, no, nothing's perfect. Everything has risk, but there are good opportunities, I think, for different sectors, for different reasons at different times. How about, what do you, what's your sentiment on private REITs? Private REITs, I've done a few, but they were in uh, like the note lending, hard money lending space. Um, they did well. I mean, this was 
three, four years ago. One of them ended up going public and then just got hammered after that happened. But, uh, you know, they were averaging, let's say, 10% a year, but it's just a cash flow play. There's no equity upside. So th- these groups are out there lending to developers and builders and flippers, and, and they're charging 13% interest. And then they're taking 3% as their fee, and they're giving us, the investors, 10%. You know, so it can be good if you're, you know, if you need a higher yield in an environment like today or your retiree looking to amplify your monthly income. But, you know, I I like the hybrid model the most where you have equity upside potential. I never bank on that, but when it's there, it's nice. And then you also get cash flow throughout the hold period. So if things go sideways or don't work out as planned or you hit delays, I like to invest in something that's going to be cash flow positive on day number one so that we're not having to wait three or four years to see a potential outcome. So, but that's just me. On on private REITs, uh, how about ones that are you know private real not you know notes, but let's yeah. say uh, you know a real estate asset class that's a private yeah. REIT. Yeah, so haven't done it directly. Lots of them exist. I would be a fan of doing that. I generally invest in. It's usually a limited partnership, or it could be an LLC structure. So it's not a trust. It's not a REIT because REITs have to abide by different rules. You know, something like we have to distribute ninety percent of our income or or more to our investors. You know, every year stuff like that. So it's just different legal structures. But what you're essentially alluding to is a private held fund of sorts that buys commercial real estate and you know is is not publicly traded. So yeah, that's what I invest in generally speaking. Though it's not a REIT by legal structure, it's the same concept. You get added diversification, you get multiple properties in it and um yeah, big fan of that. I used to just do individual deals, but that changed probably 3-4 years ago. I started doing a lot more funds because I found it to be much more predictable steady and consistent income. And because I live on passive income, that's very important to me. And it was kind of like picking stocks. Sometimes you're right. Sometimes you're wrong. (laughs) So I wasn't the smartest. Let's just say that. Well, it's funny you say that, you know, I just, cause, cause I'll tell you what, you know, as you know, you know, there's strong thoughts and sentiment on both, you know, single asset versus funds. Um, But I, I had an interview with, I'm sure, you know, Brian Burke, yeah. Uh, I did an interview with him a month ago or so, and he just said, no matter what, you don't know if that property is going to do as well as you think it's going to do until you're in the middle. And sometimes you just have dogs and there's nothing you could do. Things change. Like you were talking about, like if Colorado things politically, things you can't predict, you know, you, you just, some things are just unknowable till you get to the dance. And so that's why he's a, a proponent of funds as well for that just mis- risk mitigation, diversification period. There's always something. It's just how bad is it going to be? There's always a kitchen fire. There's always a hurricane. There's always a flood. There's always a tornado. There's always, you know, people not going to pay their rent. So how bad is is the question? But to your point, yeah, you know, generally speaking across my portfolio, the vast majority perform at or above expectations, at least historically speaking, and you will have the underperformers or in the sense that you lost money for some particular reason. So the only thing I've ever found to, um, you know, caveat that that risk, you know, is just diversify just uh, and and I've been criticized for 
hyper diversification. You know, you were talking about earlier, you know, you've, you've worked with maybe 12 operators, but in larger amounts, you know, in the beginning, I mean, I, in fairness, I was skeptical. I, I thought this, this whole business model was too good to be true because I'm looking at overviews saying you might make 20% a year for five years in a row doing nothing. And I'm thinking, you know, I don't even make that much of a yield on some of my projects that I'm doing all the work in. So you're telling me I don't have to do anything and I'm gonna get the same outcome. I thought it was too good to be true. So when I started, I started doing low amounts. I was asking operators to lessen their minimum investment to let me try them out. And um, yeah, that became a, a K1 nightmare. So I don't do that anymore. But uh, anyway, I didn't know what I didn't know. Right. So that was my way of learning. You know what? One of the first podcasts, I've come late to the podcast world as a mm-hmm. podcaster and also somebody that listens to podcasts really just in the last three years to, to be truthful. Okay. One of the first podcasts I ever listened to was you. You were the host and you were interviewing a guy were, or, or maybe you were talking about a guy that you knew that was like worth a hundred million dollars oh, or, yeah. or $80 million. Dollars. Yeah. Is that, okay. And he yeah. was, and, and you were saying he will to this day, well, this was like three years ago, but up until three years ago, he would only put at max a hundred grand into a deal. Yeah. Yeah. And some of that, so that was one of my first mentors. There was two guys that came out of uh, Boulder, Colorado. I'm estimating rough numbers, what their net worth is, but they were, they've been full-time LPs at this point, maybe 30 years or something, um, close to it anyway. And yeah, I mean, you got to think they had some, some wacky ideas, uh, on some things in my opinion, you know, this guy in particular had like 40% of his, all his investments in insured muni bonds, which I thought you're crazy. You're going to get a 3% yield. You're not even going to keep up with inflation. He goes, no, no, listen, he goes, if you run the math, this is tax-free income that we're talking about. And it's an insured municipal bond. My risk level is very minimal. And he said, if all my other portfolio falls apart and goes to zero, I got a good life and it's tax-free. And I thought, okay, that makes a lot of sense. I was criticizing him at first, you know. But anyway, the one of the main things they had focused on was value add multifamily. And uh that that got me into it. And yeah, what a what a logistical nightmare, man. I'd hate to be that guy's CPA. <laughs> <laughs> well, he doesn't have to be the CPA. He hires out. Well, well, you know, everybody's financial situation and goals are different. And so when you're worth that kind of money, it's yeah. capital preservation. At what age is capital preservation not number one? You know what I mean? Right, it's like, right, yeah. yeah, it's like uh, Buffett says, rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't forget rule number one. Right. Yeah. So, uh, but I, I took a lot from that and of course have not listened to it. And subsequent to that, put too much money into sponsors that if I could roll back the, the, the hands of time, I wouldn't invest with, with a number of people I did. And that's a whole other podcast. Uh, but I'm going to go on a, a non sequitur is does Ashcroft raise institutional money? Good question. No, not generally. Our average investor is an individual accredited investor putting roughly 125000 into our deals. So the minimum is k. Occasionally, what you'll get is like a family office or a fund of funds or something, and they might go park, say, a million dollars into one of our projects. But no, we're not You know, getting... $50 million checks written from institutions. So, you know what? To you guys are great. To, and you and, and Ashcroft are great marketers. You haven't had to clearly. How about, I know a guy or maybe a couple guys that raise capital for you. How, how many guys raise capital for your deals, do you think? 
small handful. Everybody's a licensed broker dealer. You know, we've got like three levels of, of compliance team now, third party and in-house. Um, we decided to do that around 2020 to only go with licensed broker dealers. I would say, you know, and this is off the top of my head, so nobody quote me on this, but say there's there's four or five different people as a broker dealer. I would say roughly 20% of our total capital raise comes from broker dealers. So we've got a large, our biggest percentage is returning investors. So let's just call it 60%. I don't know the exact number. So 60% there, 20 from broker dealers. And the remainder is just from new people trying us out because they saw you know, uh, an advertisement or something on YouTube or a podcast or whatnot. And by the way, we, we're doing 506C deals if anybody's wondering about that. So we can generally solicit and advertise these deals. So uh, that's kind of the rough breakdown of of the capital raise. I got it. On the property management side, because you guys have scaled like crazy, how do you handle property management? Is it third party or do you have aspects of it or, or in-house? Like how have you yeah. handled all that? Ashcroft owns two different companies, uh, sister companies. Uh, Birchstone Residential is our in-house property management company. And their only client is Ashcroft Capital. So we're not out there managing other people's deals. It's only our own. And we waited, you know, Frank Rossler, one of our GPs with Joe, he um, he wanted to wait until we reached scale. We were over a billion dollars under management before we started considering maybe we should go vertically integrated and start doing our own property management. And then we also own Birchstone Construction, which is our own in-house construction company. And, you know, it's it's quite fascinating. I was out in Dallas a few months ago looking at uh, these warehouses that we lease out. We've got our second headquarters in Dallas, our primary in New York City. And we've created kind of like a little Amazon system. We're buying all the, uh, you know, the flooring, the countertops, the light fixtures, ceiling fans, door handles uh, overseas, direct from a manufacturer, shipping them into our warehouses and packaging up kits for that are already measured out and designed for the apartments that we're buying. So it'll say, you know, this property, unit number 205, whatever. And then we ship these crates to the property. And then we've got Birchstone Construction there on site. They pop open the crate, unit 205. There's everything they need right there. Very eco-friendly, limited, you know, styrofoam and plastic and colored packaging. It's just the essentials of what they need. So that's been our little system to help circumvent some of the supply chain issues and the delays and the labor shortages is just take it all in-house and build our own system. So that's been a big uh, upper hand advantage over the last couple of years. Man, that's very, very impressive. Uh, what what a trajectory. And um, you guys have built a heck of an organization. I think you guys uh, are in, you can correct me, I think it's you guys, Florida, Georgia, Texas. I know you're in those markets, but what I don't know is, are you in others, A and B? If not, are you guys have other markets that you're thinking of expanding to? And then I guess, Question two, part A, would you do go into secondary markets or tertiary markets? Yep. Great question. So the last property we bought was in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which submarket of the Raleigh-Durham area. So we're going to probably grow our footprint out there, assuming we can win some deals that, that make sense. But yeah, historically and currently, it's submarkets of Atlanta. And it's Orlando, Jacksonville, Tampa, as far as Florida is concerned. And it's Dallas, Fort Worth and surrounding submarkets in that area as well. We're Sunbelt focused investors. So yes, we're open to other markets. Uh, we actually run a survey in-house twice per year. We look at 
200 metropolitan markets that fit our general criteria of diversification and incomes and, you know, growth and historics and whatnot. And that's what kind of, you know, helps us out with what markets we're going to be branching into or doubling down on. And so, yeah, there's like a, I forget, there's like 150 different metrics or something that we look at in each of these markets. So, um, you know, and if you look at just the national stats of, of rent bumps and stuff like that, there's a good uh, chart by Yardi Matrix that kind of paints some major markets and shows the national average here in the middle. All the markets we're in have been exceeding the national average for about the last five years or so. And so that's kind of what you want to look at. There's there's too many things to talk about here on the show, but um, you know, markets are hugely important, you know, and it's, it's what led to some of my success early on in Colorado was, was frankly just the market. <laughs> if that market had been stagnant or in a slight softening, I'm sure I would have lost a lot more money than I did. So, yeah, I mean, that's the, the market is bigger than any of us. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get it. Last question for you. And, and I really enjoyed our conversation. What would you say through all of the passive investing you've done through your time at Ashcroft? We even go back to your flipping days. What would you say is the most important lesson or lessons, plural, that you've learned? The emphasis to learn and study and invest for passive income. That's not what most of us are taught. That's never what I was taught. I was always told investing is buy low and sell high. Buy a stock at 10 bucks, sell it for 15. Put money in a 401k. When you're 65, hopefully you're good. Hopefully it went up in value. You know, buy low, sell high. So... Passive income is first and foremost what allowed me to leave a job I really hated doing and that had me in in the golden handcuffs. You know, that was step number one. Beyond that, it allowed my wife and I to even have an existence together because before that I had no time to do things like that. It allowed us to start traveling. You know, that's one of our, our biggest passions. And that allowed us to be able to start a family and on our terms and to say, we're going to move from Colorado to Florida because we like the lifestyle there. We got a lot more lifestyle flexibility out of focusing on passive income and not just trying to flip things all the time. So I think that's hugely important. Um, just a lot of people aren't tuned into that message, you know, nationwide, generally speaking. Interesting. And selfishly, I hope that they uh, they don't because then the more money that pours in, the lower the returns are going to go down. So um, that, that, that's me being selfish. Anyway, Travis, how does one contact you, engage you, find you and, you know, follow you, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I'm on uh, Bigger Pockets, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. I've got a handle at Passive Investor Tips, which is also the podcast that I host. You can find that at bestevercre.com. I put my calendar out there on all these platforms. You can also go ashcroftcapital.com forward slash Travis. And there I've got some downloadable resources and my calendar. If you guys want to have a chat about anything, passive income, real estate, economy, I'm just always happy to share and, and network with people. Got it. Thank you very, very, very much. And I hope to do this with you again, maybe in a year. Congratulations on your son. Thank I you. will talk to you soon. Thank you, Roger. Thanks, you got, everyone. You got it, Travis. Travis. 